Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 27 today. As we have another question and answer session here with Jesus. From this time from the Sadducees. So before we do that, again, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us. We sang together this morning that your blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So Lord, we know that many times that curse is found foremost in our own hearts. As we would take your word and twist it, as we would take it and make it about ourselves and make ourselves the hero. And so, Lord, we need your blessing this morning that you would help us not to see ourselves, not to glory in our own accomplishments, but instead to glory in you, to be taught by you, to be shown and convicted of our sin and that you would lead us to the truth this morning. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So as I came to this text and studied it and read it, and again, this is kind of this, this group bringing a question to Jesus. It makes me think about the rules of logic and the, the logical fallacy that is being used here by the Sadducees. And it's known as the logical fallacy of reductio ad absurdum, which if you don't speak Latin, I don't. I just know those terms. It means the reduction to the absurd. We all know what absurd is. It essentially means that when someone makes a claim, the, they make it to where the contrary to that claim is just absolutely absurd to believe in. All right? And it's a way to have an argument that just makes no sense. And we're all familiar with these. We may not have known it was called this. One of my favorites as a kid was the one that my parents would always use, or my mom in particular. I'd want to do something with my friends, and I'd say, Mom, can I do this thing with my friends? She'd say, No, and I'd say, But all my friends are going to be there, and you know it's coming. If all your friends were jumping off a cliff, would you do that too? While it's possible that that might happen, it's just an absurd argument. Now, I didn't... I did tell her once it was an absurd argument. I didn't tell her again that it was absurd. Um, there are lots of examples of this. And frankly, as Christians, these are the things that we get used to, honestly. Uh, lots of things concerning our faith, concerning God, concerning the Bible. We hear these kinds of things all the time. These absurd kind of riddles or puzzles that are thrown at us. And we're like, that doesn't even make sense. Well, Jesus heard this kind of thing all the time as well. So it would make sense that we would hear them. In our passage today, Jesus is going to have a discussion with a group known as the Sadducees. And their claim is that the Bible doesn't teach the resurrection. And so in order to support their claim, they're going to come up with this absurd argument that we see in our text today. The sole purpose of which is to try to trip up this is the very Son of God, who is unable to be tripped up, of course. We've already shown several times that trying to trap Jesus is a fool's errand, but they're going to try to do that nonetheless. And like last week, we're going to see lots of details that could come up from this discussion. There's lots of things that we could, lots of rabbit trails that we could tra- chase. And those rabbit trails may 
be good ones. I don't know. But we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to focus on the main idea, as it oftentimes gets shrouded by those minute discussions that we could be having. As we come to this text, I want to do like we did last week, and to divide it into these two opposite things, these opposite points that are being made. So you're going to have this ridiculous kind of argument, and you're going to have the answer that's given to Jesus. So these points are going to be the absurdity of the question, and then second, the salvation that is found in the answer. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Mark chapter 12, we'll be starting at verse 18. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is it not, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So, again, before we get into this, there's a whole lot of context that we need to kind of catch up to, and we're going to keep it pretty short. We have to understand who are the Sadducees and what is this law that they're talking about. Well, first, the Sadducees were a group, of, there, was a lot, there were several groups of, of Jewish uh, religious types, and the Sadducees were one of them, and again, their big thing was this strict adherence to the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible, the ones that Moses wrote. And they're typically the ones involved in the maintenance of the temple and the temple sacrifices. So a lot of the priests would have been Sadducees as well. And their big claim to fame was the denial of the doctrine of the resurrection, which we see Mark recording for us here. That's front and center in our text, this idea of the doctrine of the resurrection. And so the question that they ask is drawn directly from those books of Moses. And it can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 25. As we look at this together, I think it's important for us to kind of see what's going on here. Where's this from? Because it's not like they dreamed this situation just kind of out of thin air. Now, it is kind of a silly situation, but it does have some basis to it. Deuteronomy chapter 25, starting at verse 5. And I'm just going to read these five verses just so you can get an idea of where this is coming from. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. 
And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if a man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of the house, and the name of his house shall be called Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. The Bible is full of interesting things, is it not? And so, this is a real thing. And this is where the Sadducees are pulling this from in Mark chapter 12. This type of marriage was known in Jesus' day as a leveret marriage. Because the Latin word for brother-in-law is lever. And so that's why they called it a leveret marriage. I thought the whole sandal thing was a bit over the top. But it does show the importance of what's going on here. And why it's important to hold up the name of a family. And how the death of a husband doesn't have to be a death sentence for the whole family. This is one of the main themes, in fact, in the whole book of the Bible called Ruth. Where Boaz is performing his role as Ruth's kinsman redeemer that doesn't want her to die in vain but instead redeems her brings her line back to life which is the line of christ pretty incredible how this all kind of comes together all this context comes into this question that jesus is being asked and jesus's answer then is about the resurrection I think it's important for us to ground ourselves there because we're going to see here there's lots of other things that we could be talking about when it comes to this text. And you've probably seen them even as I just read it. So we need to be careful. That brings us to the first point, the absurdity of the question. Look with me again at verse 18. Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection and they asked him a question. So remember Mark's audience was not a Jewish audience. They probably didn't know that there were all these different groups of Jewish people. So they, he kind of had to explain what the Sadducees were that he, they may have thought, well, all the Jews just kind of believe alike. And we know that to be different. And so this statement helps us and them to understand what's going on here. Why they would even ask this question in the first place. And the purpose of this question, mind you, isn't to establish whether or not marriage was going to be a thing in heaven. That's not the purpose of this question. The purpose of this is a correct view of the resurrection. What are they trying to prove to Jesus? They're trying to prove the resurrection doesn't exist. They kind of, even in verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, why would someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection say that if they weren't trying to mock the person that they're questioning? So that's exactly what's going on. Sadducees' view of the resurrection would preclude them from any kind of views of the afterlife as well. Understand this. They didn't believe in eternal life at all. They lived very much for the day at hand. They had no understanding of eternal life and what that would bring. So when Jesus came, and he came preaching this idea of eternal life, and that's been his primary teaching all along, and this idea of repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand, Believe in me, you can have eternal life. Jesus is the key to all of this. And so then what are they going to try to do? 
They're going to try to discredit him. They're going to try to make his whole ministry unravel with this little puzzle that they've dreamed up. They come to Jesus with this question, which to me is very reminiscent of questions and discussions that I've had with non-believers for years. They kind of dream up this little scenario in their heads that they just know is going to stump some Christian or they've created some standard by which they'll attempt to define God by and then they're going to ask a question concerning the little puzzle that they've made and they kind of sit back with their fingers and they think, oh, I've got him now, for sure. And most times, a simple, solid understanding of basic biblical ideas causes them to scurry. Which is exactly what you see here. They can't hold up to someone who actually knows what they're talking about. So that brings me to verses 19 through 23. Let's look at those again together. And I'll kind of sum this up for you rather than read it all. So again, keeping that Deuteronomy 25 passage in mind, teacher, Moses wrote for us. Remember, they really loved Moses and they loved his five books. In fact, that was their whole Bible. Moses wrote for us that if a man brothers dies and leaves his wife but leaves no child, the man must take up the widow and rise up offspring for his brother. We just read that in Deuteronomy 25. And what they go on to say is what if this happens with seven brothers in a row and the seventh brother dies and then the wife dies? Who, who's, who's the husband? In the resurrection, again, they're mocking Jesus here, when they all rise again, whose wife will she be? It's a good question. Actually, it's not. It's kind of a bad question. And they think, you know what? This is a puzzle. and We've got Jesus here. Is this scenario possible? Could this have happened? Yes. Is it probable? No. Not even close. Yet, we have to understand what Jesus does here. Rather than blow off their stupid question, he entertains it. And he does so in kindness. It's a firm kindness. Notice he tells them that they're wrong in no uncertain terms. You are quite wrong. But he's firm, but he's kind to them as well. He doesn't hesitate to call them wrong, yet he lowers the boom gently to them. He presents the truth about himself. There are lots of things for us to consider here. And first of all is our own hearts in this. Because understand, as Christians, and I think particularly as Reformed Christians, we struggle with this. We are prone to this kind of absurdity. When it comes to the truth of the scriptures. And we'll oftentimes cover up our ignorance of the very main and plain things, you know, like the resurrection. By searching out some obscure thing and become really good at that obscure thing. I mean, take this passage, for instance. What is Jesus doing? Well, he gives us a concise answer to the question which is ultimately about the legitimacy of the doctrine of the resurrection. However, in doing so, he comes. He, he tells us these other things that are also true and good about marriage and the afterlife and about angels. And another thing that Sadducees didn't believe in, actually, about all these other things. And so rather than focus our attention on the main and plain thing here, the doctrine of the resurrection, we'd like to focus on things like angels. We like to focus on whether or not angels are married, whether or not we'll be married in heaven, and all the applications that follow from that. And I'm sure those are important things. Don't get me wrong. Jesus spoke them. They're obviously important. He didn't say all that many words while he was here on earth. I mean, he only lived 30 some odd years. And so everything that he said was very important to us. 
But what are, what are the most important things? I'm sure if you were to gather up a few ministers and ask them to explain what's going on here, a few people who have studied the Word, they might all come up with different ideas and different applications of what these verses might mean. Why? Because it's just some obscure doctrine. It's not unimportant, I'm not saying that, but the applications of it are so fringe, it won't matter to the average believer. Yet, when it comes to the doctrine of the resurrection... How many who call themselves Christians can give a basic defense of it? How many know why it's important? What is the doctrine of the resurrection? How many can answer that question? We have a whole holiday about it. Why do we even celebrate that holiday? Why is it important? Well, Jesus rose from the dead. Okay. Why is that important? Because trust me, when it comes to the absurd questions that the anti-Christian types will ask us, or even those fringe questions that someone just really wants to know, or an unbeliever wants to know, these seemingly ridiculous questions that are, are really at the center of those questions, and what they really want to know are the main and plain things. They may be asking some silly thing, like the Sadducees here are asking this silly question, but at the end of the day, what do they really want to know about Jesus? What do you view, what are your views on the resurrection? And these important things end up coming to the top. Who is God? Who is Jesus? Why does the resurrection matter? These things that we should know. And I think many times, particularly when it comes to defending our faith, we think about the, the you know, subject of apologetics and offending our faith and defense of the faith. We think about these absurd little questions as being the key to defending our faith. Instead, it's really about the main and plain things of the Bible. And if you don't know those things, that's what's going to get you chewed up. Not not knowing if angels can marry people or not. When a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, are you going to talk to them about why they don't celebrate birthdays or why they don't have any windows in their buildings? Or are you going to show them from the Bible that Jesus is indeed the Son of God? Your choice. When it comes to your atheist friend who questions the Bible's view of slavery, will you wax eloquent? on all the different kinds of slavery in history and the historical context of the Bible? Or will you tell them about how you were once a slave to sin, but now you are a slave to righteousness? There are, those other things do matter. Don't get me wrong. They matter. But they don't matter nearly as much as eternity, which is very real. They don't matter nearly as much as Jesus Christ. And so what do we know, brothers and sisters in Christ? Christians, let us be students of the Bible. Let us be students of others who are students of the Bible. Well, why do you say that? I just need to know the Bible. Well, it's so that we don't go off in these crazy lands, so that we can stay grounded. It just so turns out that if people have been believing the same things throughout history, it's probably because they're right. If you found something new, it's because you're wrong. Stay with what people have been studying. Be a student of the Bible. The Sadducees here, they came up with a new doctrine, did they not? And what does Jesus know? Or what does Jesus let them know about it? But they're quite wrong. That brings us to the next point, the salvation in the answer. Look at verse 24. And Jesus says exactly what we just got through saying. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor 
the power of God. He gets straight to the point. Jesus doesn't try to tease out their riddle just yet. He lets them know exactly where they stand and where he stands with them. This is why you are wrong. You don't know the Bible. You don't know the God of the Bible. Those two important things. You might know all about this Leverett law and how it deals with resurrection and how you can try to make fun of me, but you don't know anything about the scriptures that you claim to know something about. Understand this question or understand what Jesus is saying here. And particularly when it comes to your future discussions that you're going to have with unbelievers and the silly things that they're going to say to you about the God of the Bible and about the Bible itself. You're, you're hearing that from someone who doesn't know the scriptures and who doesn't know God. So understand that when you deal with these folks. If, if their starting point is bad, then their finish line is going to be way out in left field. We see this with the Sadducees right here. If someone doesn't start with the scriptures, then they've made up their own truth. That's the only other option. They've made up their own truth. And if they've done that, they've shown themselves to be wrong from the starting point. And so what Jesus does is he establishes their foundation, their presupposition, if you will. And so after establishing that, he then attacks the question with ease, demonstrating that they don't know the five books of the Bible that they claim is the only true scriptures. Notice what he says to them. Verse 25, or do you know the book of Moses? Verse 26, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? These people could recite the book of Moses. Have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? How Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I love this because Jesus kind of mocks them a little bit. The book of Moses was their whole Bible. And then Jesus refers to the passage about the bush, which would have been an easy way to refer to, you know, they didn't have chapters. They didn't say, well, back in Exodus 3, because they didn't have those chapters. So they just, the passage about the bush, and they all knew the passage about the bush. This is where the scene where Moses is standing before a bush and it starts talking to him. And it's on fire, but it's not burning. We all know this too, right? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Let's look at the passage about the bush. Why is Jesus talking about this? I'm going to read these first eight verses or so. And keep, as I'm reading this, keep in your mind, why is Jesus talking about the burning bush when it comes to resurrection? What is resurrection? What does resurrection have to do with what's being said here? Understand this. So look with me at Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his, of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take off your sandals, off your feet, for the place from which you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now get this. Then God, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters and I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. We all know this story, right? Here Moses is confronted by God in a burning bush. God has a message for Moses. He starts his message with what Jesus gave us back in Mark chapter 12. I am the God of Abraham. Moses knew who Abraham was. The God of Isaac and Jacob. Moses knew who those people were. Those were the people that God made those first promises to. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those were the people that God delivered the covenant promises to. That through him, these covenant signs were given. It was to those men that God first said, I will be your God, and you, people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you will be my people. And those people were currently in Egypt, in slavery. And now what is God going to do for them? He's going to deliver them from this place of death, and he's going to bring them to this promised land of life. So understand here, Jesus quotes from the passage about the bush in order to show the Sadducees that God isn't a God who leaves his children to die. But he is a God that is going to make them alive. And even from the garden, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, what were they told after they ate the fruit? You will surely die. Yet they were given a promise of hope. And Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, these people were shown that hope. They were shown that truth. And now in Jesus, that hope and that truth are being made alive. While in the garden, those people earned death through Jesus, they could have life. How do you get from death to life? You have to be resurrected. The life that God promised to Moses in the burning bush, that promised land, was just a small taste A small foreshadowing of what Jesus would bring for all eternity. So when Jesus says to them, you are quite wrong, there can be no rebuttal. They are shown to be false by the book that they claim to be their only sacred text. And if they had a modicum of knowledge from it, they would know that their God is a God of the living, not of the dead. That Jesus has come so that they can have life and have it to the full. You and I can have that life too. We need only believe that he has risen from the dead. That's it. And that's the whole catch. The life that he offers us comes with a price. It's not as if he just said, you know what? I'm going to make you alive today and him be able to do that. There had to be some sort of payment because 
in the garden, what happened? What did we each do? We all sinned. Each of us, through Adam, were told, you shall surely die. Not only in this life, Adam and Eve died. Everyone since then has died. But also in the one to come. So Jesus' coming needed to accomplish two things. Now hear this doctrine of the resurrection. It needed to accomplish two things. Not only did it need to pay for the sin that they had committed, but it needed to show that the death penalty that they were owed would no longer have power over them. So when Jesus was nailed to the cross, my sins, your sins, they were nailed there with him so that Jesus paid for those sins with his own blood. And in his and in their place, we now have his righteousness assigned to us through the act of justification. But that's not all. If that were all, then death would be the end. The blessings would be in for this life only. So Jesus, after he did that, after he died on the third day, he rose from the dead. He not only conquered the sin that would condemn me to death, but he conquered the death that, that would destroy me for all time. When he tells them, you are quite wrong, he knows that he will indeed experience personally just how wrong they are. And for all those for whom he said, I will be your God, you will be my people. And so for us today, brothers and sisters in Christ, do we believe that? Is that the central message of what we believe and preach and understand as Christians? Or is it just a little something with all these other little somethings? We like to make the little things big things because it makes us look special. But it's Jesus alone whom we should glorify. And when we clearly proclaim the name of Jesus as the one and only risen from the dead, we bring all power and glory and majesty to him alone because he alone deserves it. Because were it not for him, what would we have? Nothing. We'd be sinners who would surely die. But now we have life and we have it abundantly. And so in conclusion, brothers and sisters in Christ, Learn your Bibles. Learn the main and plain things over and over again. Learn them. Defend what you believe. When it comes to these silly kinds of questions, you'll be ready. And trust in Jesus Christ alone. He is the power of the resurrection. He brings us from death to new life. And let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we read these things, we do admit that we sometimes struggle with the essential things. We want to make them old hat. We want to make them uninteresting. But they are all we need. Lord, help us to see that. Not to put off those other things. They're interesting too. They're important to you. They should be important to us. But Lord, help us to see what the world needs. They don't need a doctrine of angels. They need Jesus. And so Lord, help us to be ones who preach Christ. It's in his name we pray.
Amen.